You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Today, our guest on Preaching Source is Dr. Kyle Walker, who is one of my colleagues, uh, a fellow professor of preaching here on the faculty of the School of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He's also our vice president for student services. I'd love to spend a whole uh, podcast just talking about your adventures as the vice president for student services, but that's another time, another subject. Today, we want to talk to Dr. Walker about Puritan preaching, which is one of his specialties of studies. So uh, uh, welcome, Dr. Walker. Glad to have you today. Thank you, Dr. McCarty. Great to be back. I enjoy doing this whenever I have the opportunity. Well, uh, when we talk about the history of preaching and development of preaching, uh, it's from anybody's cut of the subject. The preaching of the Puritan era, is it, it looms large. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, what, who were the Puritans and what characterized Puritanism? And, and talk a bit about the preaching of the Puritans. Sure. Well, the word Puritan itself certainly conjures up a variety of images and ideas for people today, and uh, many perhaps when they hear the term Puritan, uh, unfortunately often have a caricature in their mind of a uh, some sort of 17th century religious fanatic or social extremist, uh, and some certainly were, but on the whole, the Puritans really were some of the most devoted followers of Christ that, w- that we could speak of in the history of the church. Of course, when we refer to the Puritans, we're not uh, referencing, uh, it's, it's, it's key to recognize we're not referencing a purely monolithic group that all held to the exact same theological convictions. Uh, Puritanism, rather, was a, a broad movement within Protestantism that sought the purity of the church to establish a, a pure church that is modeled on the New Testament. And in this movement, this broad movement, primarily took place in England and New England proper, uh, generally dated from 1550 to about the year 1700. Uh, in fact, many mark its official birth to 1559 with the Act of Uniformity in the, under the, in the Church of England under Elizabeth I. And this movement occurred, you might say, more generally speaking, after the medieval period and, and Reformation, the birth of the Reformation, after that and before the rise of modern times. Uh, of course, there were some, some distinguishing characteristics of Puritanism that brought it together as a whole, brought it unity as a broad movement that came as a result of their uh, desire for a pure church in doctrine and practice. And that was really the push of the Puritan was to go beyond just uh, correct belief doctrinally, but to see that lived out practically in the life of the church and in the life of the Christian. Uh, So this desire for a pure church modeled on the New Testament emphasized things like, number one, true spirituality, uh, i.e. conversion, uh, so that, of course, is the thing which separates a true believer from one that only has intellectual faith. Uh, This translated, this emphasis on true spirituality or conversion translated into their emphasis on regenerate church membership, uh, church discipline, and genuine worship corporately together. Uh, second thing that was as a product of the Reformation uh, that was one of their characteristics was they emphasized the absolute supreme authority of Scripture. Uh, the cry of sola scriptura still rang true for the Puritans 
uh, as those who stood on the shoulders of the reformers and uh, led them to base everything on the teaching of Scripture rather than tradition or custom of the church. Uh, third, they sought to make Christ the center of attention in everything that they did. And uh, right along with that, they emphasized, fourthly, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in daily living in order to glorify God in all of life, in all aspects, all spheres of life. So those are, we could go on, but those are some general characteristics that brought together and unified the movement as a whole. Now, we call them Puritans, but when you start talking about the supremacy of the Word of God and regenerate church membership, uh, they sound like early Baptists uh, to me. With, with, is that a fair connection it's to a, make? It's a very fair connection. And in fact, the spirit of Puritanism would live on, Dr. McCarty, to influence lots of groups, Baptists included, Presbyterians, uh, Congregationalists, uh, many other Protestant offshoots that were influenced not only by the Puritans, but others, but Puritans... Uh, Largely, who uh, who are some of the key names in in the Puritan movement? Wow. Well, to name to name one Puritan is honestly to leave out another. It's hard to to mention a lot of the key names, but uh, there are several that that come to my mind. You think of men like John Knox and John Hooper in the beginning. Um, men like Thomas Cartwright and John Bunyan, uh, William Perkins, a giant of a Puritan, and right alongside John Owen. Uh, Samuel Rutherford, Richard Sibbs, John Preston, lots of Thomases from Thomas Watson, Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Brooks, Thomas Manton, Richard Baxter, just to name, you know, 10 to a dozen there that really are, are names that stand out. Now, when I think of Puritan preaching, I, I the term plain style uh, comes to my mind first. What What is plain style preaching the way the Puritans did it? That's a great question. Well, Puritans were certainly known for a type of rhetoric that they adopted that we refer to as the plain style. Uh, of course, what that means is, in, in short, is they sought to preach in the plain and direct speech of the people uh, so that people could clearly understand the Word of God. The Anglicans, the Church of England, the Anglican preachers were more orators than they were preachers. Uh, they would have identified more as orators and would even been looked upon more that way. Their lofty and often ornamental speech made them eloquent, but, but not necessarily evangelistic in their style and in their vocabulary uh, that was more lofty served often as more of an obstacle rather than a vehicle of understanding for the audience to hear the Word of God plainly and clearly. So the Puritan, on the other hand, had a burning desire for the people to hear and heed the Word of God. So their preaching was earnest. It was aimed at conversion, at practice, and, of course, practical obedience. I love what Richard Baxter said, and many have heard it, but, uh, again, it's worth repeating, is that, as he put it, a preacher must preach the Word of God as a dying man to dying men, communicating the earnestness, the blood earnestness of the preaching of these Puritans and, and its importance. They realized the urgency of men and women hearing and understanding the Word of God through preaching, uh, which they saw as the high point and the culminating point of cor corporate worship was the preaching of God's Word. So they committed themselves to a style that was plain but not dull in any way. Uh, but to be, it could be understood by all. In fact, uh, John, um, John Flavel it was a Puritan that uh, I want to read here a quote from him because I believe he best captures this, the essence of the Puritan plain style. Uh, here's, what, here's what he said. He said, a crucified style best suits the preachers of a crucified Christ. Prudence will choose words that are solid rather than florid. 
As a merchant will choose a ship by a sound bottom and capacious hold rather than a gilded head and stern. Words are but servants to matter. An iron key fitted to the wards of a lock is more useful than a golden one that will not open the door to the treasures. Prudence will cast away a thousand fine words for that one that is apt to penetrate the conscience and reach the heart. That right there is the essence of Puritan plain style preaching. Now, uh, the next thing I think of when I think of Puritan preaching is doctrinal preaching. They were uh, famous for that. Is, is there a difference between doctrinal preaching, the way the Puritans practiced it, and what we would consider modern expository preaching? Sure. Well, it's certainly true that, that many refer to the Puritans as expository preachers, uh, and in one sense they, they were, and I would even refer to the Puritans uh, on a whole as, as expositors in one sense. And, but their version of exposition, one might rightly refer to as doctrinal preaching as well. It, it, it started with a text, but the aim of the sermon was not necessarily to develop that text in its natural context. Rather, what most Puritan preachers would do on a whole is they would take a very short text, and, and really what you might say is a micro-text, uh, a sentence or even less than a sentence, maybe just a phrase, a few words. Not, we're not talking a natural paragraph unit or natural unit of thought, of literary thought. And they would then take that microtext and connect that text to a biblical doctrine to be developed, where the bulk of the sermon was spent developing rhetorically uh, a doctrine. And that could be developed by bringing in a host of other scriptures that might speak and develop that doctrine. And then finally, it culminated with the application or uses of that doctrine for practical living. So hence the reason why we say Puritan preaching was structured along a threefold division. We, we, we typically say along the divisions of text, that's the expositional part, then the doctrine, and then its uses. So even David Larson in his two-volume work on the history of preaching goes so far as to say, look, the Puritans were expositors in one sense, but the text was not king for the Puritans. The doctrine they were preaching was king. So doctrinal preaching takes a text for the sake of developing a doctrine. However, to speak about the difference between exposition and doctrinal preaching, uh, expository preaching in a, in a more pure form, what we might call text-driven preaching, seeks a natural thought unit of text and develops the idea or the ideas that text presents based on the natural literary context and intent of the author. Um, Puritan preaching, rather, on the other hand, did some of that, but then majored on the doctrine they saw that text pitching towards. Mm. What books influenced the development of Puritan homiletics? Well, really, there's one that stands out uh, above the rest, and, and, and it's The Art of Prophesying by William Perkins, a, really a standout of, of, of many of the Puritan names that I mentioned. Pur uh, Perkins had read and imbibed the, the ide ideology of a French logician by the name of Peter Ramus, and to understand his book, that's key to understand, is, is his influence, the influence on Perkins by Peter Ramus. Ramus was, of course, concerned with philosophy and logic and rhetoric, and what he did most crucially was his ideas led him to alter Aristotle's classical five canons of rhetoric, so which were invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. 
Aristotle's five canons of rhetoric. So when I mean canons of rhetoric, Aristotle defined rhetoric as the means of persuasion. And Aristotle said these five things, these are elements that all contribute towards the means of persuasion, invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. Well, Ramus, looking at this through a logical lens, or at least a logical lens for him, meant taking and separating invention and arrangement. So that's, that's your content and the way you lay out your content. He separated that into the category of logic. And then he said only style, memory, and delivery were left to be under the classification of rhetoric. So this bifurcation of rhetoric that Ramus made is actually something that affects us today. And when we, you and I hear the word rhetoric, when someone refers to, oh, that's all that rhetoric or just rhetoric, well, they're referring to style, memory, and delivery, not, in, not invention and arrangement. So they, they're talking in a, in a Ramus fashion. So when he took the style, memory, and delivery and said that these three belong to rhetoric, in a way, he subordinated those as being inferior to operating and using the means of persuasion guided by logic uh, more exclusively. So Peter Ramus and his rhetorical theory had an incredible influence on William Perkins and this book, The Art of Prophesying, that influenced the Puritan sermon. And so, in short, the elements of what Ramus called rhetoric, the style, memory, and delivery, were subordinated, while the elements of logic, invention, arrangement were primary, and they produced a logical approach to theology and preaching. And so Perkins, influenced by this logical approach, produced a, a sermon form that I've already referred to that was really the, the product or, or growth out of bifurcating rhetoric and prom making uh, invention and arrangement primary. And of course, this produced the Puritan sermon that laid out the logical uh, development of the text to doctrine and to uses. And of course, it was, all, it was also Peter Ramus's theory that even influenced the plain style. The plain style was not only theologically driven, it was also driven by the way they approached rhetoric to lay out their, their sermon in a logical way that, that did not allow style, memory, and delivery to carry the same weight. And so it, uh, it subordinated those things to elevate the logical approach, producing that Puritan form, which Perkins' book codified very mm. clearly. Now, what were the Puritan preaching lectureships? That's a good question. Uh, the Puritans, of course, they were concerned about thorough reform in the church, uh, as I've mentioned, both doctrine and practice. But, uh, but many within the church felt like they had to conform to Anglican traditions. Um, again, many of them remained in the church for, uh, for the duration of their ministry in order to try to reform the church from within. And, and many of the pastors argued they had, they had taken an oath. They had to honor it. Uh, so they continued within the church. However, one of the alternative solutions they adopted was to appoint people called lecturers. And of course, what in the word were these? Well, they were not people that, that, that held a pastoral office in the church. They were, they were preachers that did not have the responsibility of the parish or the pastoral side. Their work was to preach and really to preach the true doctrine as the Puritans understood it. Uh, these lectures, and they soon became popular, uh, especially in the market towns and in, in, in London in particular, uh, in England, in the England of Elizabeth and James, these preaching lectures, they answered the call for more effective preaching when the parish clergy were sometimes unable to meet to the standard they wanted to meet as a result of trying to abide and, and remaining within the church and, and being under some of the restrictions of the, the church customs and traditions, they weren't, con they weren't completely uh, pushing to the side. And so therefore they looked to these preaching lectures to try to supply some of the, 
the expository preaching, the development of the text of Scripture that they necessarily couldn't do uh, in the ordinary ways. Mm. Uh, to, to sum up here today, can, can you talk to us a little bit about what some of the strengths of Puritan preaching were and, and maybe even some of the weaknesses or things that led to its decline? Mm. Well, at the center of Puritan preaching, there was a profound sense uh, that Scripture was the supreme authoritative and inerrant Word of God, and that listening to the Word of God was, was the ultimate center and high point of true Christian worship. So this was the foundational conviction that gave Puritan preaching its strength, and that everything grew out of. It was preaching that overflowed from the conviction that Scripture was what gave birth to the church and what would sustain the church and was the first and foremost mark of a healthy church. You've also perhaps heard that Puritan preaching is described as preaching with both light and heat. Um, light being the preaching that brings forth understanding uh, toward the Word of God, making it plain and clear, uh, preaching that sought to put no obstacle in the way of, of understanding and obedience. But then on the other side, the heat of it was not only the understanding and, and uh, directed toward the mind and one's understanding, but also the heat to affect the emotions, to, to persuade one to act and obey. So the evangelistic, the vigorous, enthusiastic, and urgent, passionate appeal of the preaching gave it great strength that sought to win souls. They, sought, they preached for a verdict. They, they preached for people to obey and to be converted. Those were its great strengths. But it also had its weaknesses and much that led to its, its decline, and, and many factors could be named that contributed to the decline of Puritan preaching. Of course, eventually the Puritan movement officially came to an end uh, in the late 1600s with the uh, Act of Uniformity and the Great Ejection, where finally it was approximately about 2,000 ministers who finally put their foot down and just said, look, we're no longer can go no further abiding by what the church is telling us we have to abide by, and they were, therefore they were ejected. And Anglican Puritanism, you might say, proper, came to an end. But the spirit of Puritanism certainly continued, um, even affecting men like we might name like Jonathan Edwards, and even as late as Charles Spurgeon might be sometimes called to as the last great Puritan. Well, he wasn't a part of Puritanism proper, but the essence of Puritanism, which if you read Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on that, it's just more of a mind, it's an attitude, it's a spirit uh, of going about living the Christian life in a way and in accord with the Scriptures according to one's own conscience, not in accordance with the state or a state church, but according to one one truly believes according to their convictions uh, that they should before God. And so he even looks back to the what he would say the essence or spirit of Puritanism began with a William Tyndale. Uh, back in, you know, way before sometimes the official movement began as he sought a translation of Scripture uh, without the, uh, you know, the... Uh, without the authorities giving him permission, and then left the state without royal assent. But the, the, what would eventually lead to its decline officially, um, you might look to and say the 18th century enlightenment, uh, the scientific revolution and the attack on the authority of the Word of God in the greater culture. Of course, moderatism and rationalism crept in as a result, and then 1700, something came over like a cloud, the Church of England, with something we call latitudinarianism which is just a fancy way of describing a spiritual stupor or an apathy that descended on the Church of England in the early 18th century. Preaching became more moralistic and therapeutic and less evangelistic. Uh, Puritanism splintered out into separatism and nonconformity uh, and the birth of other um, denominations and groups. 
uh, that we look to today, such as Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists for a period of time and others. Um, of course, certain men did stand out for their biblical and evangelistic preaching in the spirit of Puritanism, like I've already mentioned, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Edwards, and others. But it was this combination of factors, some external like the Enlightenment, uh, some ideological such as individualism or humanism, you might say, and naturalism. But there were the historical and political factors that I've already named that brought an official end to the official movement proper. Uh, but then spiritual factors such as a growing intolerance for a variety of theological views, moralism, and rationalism all created a great, great barriers to some of the Puritan preaching continuing uh, as we refer to it today. Mm. Now, you, you used the term earlier of light and heat as a way of, of uh, characterizing Puritan preaching. Uh, I believe uh, Dr. Bruce Bickle has a book by that title, Light and Heat, and the subtitle is The Puritan View of the Pulpit. Would, if somebody wanted to dig a little deeper in Puritan preaching, would that be a good place to start? It would be a great place to start. It's a little book. It's easy to read, and it really gets to the heart of what Puritan preaching was all about and what made it— uh, unique. And so I would highly recommend the book, especially the first half of it, for those wanting to, to get a greater grasp of what the Puritans are all about. I believe it's out of print now, but it's still available through Amazon and eBay. But Light and Heat, The Puritan View of the Pulpit by Dr. R. Bruce Bickle. We would recommend that to you. Our guest today has been Dr. Kyle Walker talking about Puritan preaching. Dr. Walker, thank you for being with us on Preaching Source today. Thank you, Dr. McCarty. It's been a pleasure. 